Well, hello. Thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Catholic churches on November 21st, 2021, the final Sunday in this church year. The day goes by three names. The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, or the Feast of Christ the King, or the 34th Sunday in Ordinary Time. But wait, you ask, if it's a solemnity, how can it still be a Sunday in Ordinary Time? Here's how. Every Sunday is a solemnity. The word ordinary in the term ordinary time doesn't mean ordinary as in humdrum, there's nothing exciting here. Rather, it is ordinary as in ordinal, which means numbered as a part of a series. Tuck that tidbit away. You never know when it will come up at the dinner table. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. Scroll to the date for the Mass and click on in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I am not here to preach to you. I'm here just to share some background and context information gathered from the work of genuine Scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but fair warning, it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. The Feast of Christ the King is at the end of each liturgical year. The season of green, ordinary time, comes to an end with the altar and the priests and deacons wearing white. In our annual cycle of Masses, all the preparatory seasons culminate in a great celebratory feast. Advent prepares us for the Feast of the Incarnation, Christmas. Lent prepares us for the Sacred Triduum and the Feast of the Resurrection, Easter. So, one could say that over our 34 numbered Sundays, we have been preparing for the Feast of Christ the King. During ordinary time, we walk with Jesus in his ministry. We listen to him teaching, we see him perform miracles, and we puzzle over his parables. In short, we learn why Jesus is called the King. Because the more distinctive season of Advent begins our new church year the next Sunday, it's easy for us to look past this feast in anticipation of the more commercially exploited time into which we will embark. This feast is a relatively new one. It was Pope Pius XI who instituted it in 1925. World War I was not far in the past. Secularism and destructive forms of nationalism were on the rise. The Pope wanted to remind the faithful that Jesus is king over every nation, every human, every bit of creation. In his encyclical Introducing the Feast, Pius XI quoted one of the early church fathers, St. Cyril of Alexandria, who wrote, Christ has dominion over all creatures, a dominion not seized by violence nor usurped, but his by essence and by nature. 
The Pope elaborates on this with these words. His kingship is founded upon the ineffable hypostatic union. Now that last phrase, the ineffable hypostatic union, might not be immediately clear to the typical mass-goer. Hypostatic union is a technical term in theology referring to the two full natures present completely within the person of Jesus, fully human and fully divine. Characterizing that union as ineffable is just an admission that there aren't words available in any human language to clearly explain it. That's another way of saying it's something that must be experienced in relationship. It cannot be described nor understood with the intellect alone. Pius XI went on, The Word of God, and here he's referring to Jesus, The Word of God, as consubstantial with the Father, has all things in common with him, and therefore has necessarily supreme and absolute dominion over all things created. Still quoting the Pope, Christ is also king by acquired as well as by natural right, for he is our Redeemer. We are no longer our own property, for Christ has purchased us with a great price. Our very bodies are the members of Christ. Pius continues that God bestowed upon Christ the nations of the world as his special possession and dominion, citing the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus affirms, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. For especially important solemnities such as this one, all the scripture readings are thematically linked to the gospel. Today's theme is, appropriately, the authority of Jesus the Christ to lead the hearts, minds, and souls of everyone. Like last week, the first reading is from the book of Daniel. If you want some background context about Daniel's book, I encourage you to listen to last week's episode of this podcast. This week, Daniel gives us a prophetic vision of God's heavenly throne and the ascent of the Son of Man. Here is a reading from the book of the prophet Daniel. As the visions during the night continued, I saw one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven when he reached the Ancient One and was presented before him, the One like a Son of Man received dominion, glory, and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. If the phrase Son of Man sounds familiar to you, it should. Jesus uses this phrase 81 times to refer to himself across the four Gospels, 30 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, and 12 times in John. We also read this phrase in the Acts of the Apostles and the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel from the 2nd century BC is the earliest use of this phrase in Scripture. And there's a backstory here. Understand, we're hearing from the conclusion of one of Daniel's prophetic dream visions. In it, he is shown wild, roiling seas. Think of those last minutes of the film, The Perfect Storm. 
From this chaos, four hideous beasts arise. Each is different from the others. All of them are bizarre and plenty scary. Within the dream, he is told that the beasts represent kings who will rise up in the region to dominate God's people. The fourth beast, the most menacing of them all, is described as having a multitude of horns, including one large horn on which there are eyes and a mouth. All the earth he will devour, Daniel is told, with his iron teeth and bronze claws and feet that trample whatever is left. Daniel confesses his own abject terror at the sight. Despite their short-term domination, all the kings will be overcome by God, called the Ancient of Days or the Ancient One. This title is to indicate that all creation is a new development springing from the Ancient One whose existence precedes everything. Again, within the vision, Daniel is told that all the kings will be stripped of their domains, which will then be handed over to the holy ones of God, and that reign will be unending. Within the passage, Daniel sees the one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and presented to the ancient one. The term son of man naturally is a human image, yet in Daniel's vision, the writer qualifies the statement, one like a son of man. For Christians, it is, in one sentence, a description of the hypostatic union. As interpreted by a follower of Jesus, this is a case where Daniel sees the human in his divine state. The church sees it as Jesus ascending on a cloud to the throne with God. Remember, in Scripture speak, a cloud is always the image of God's presence. It is all a scene of ultimate divine protection and of the interaction between humanity and divinity. The next element of this passage is what happens to the Son of Man once presented before God. We read this divine person is given dominion, glory, and kingship over all peoples, nations, and languages. All peoples, nations, and languages seems to me to be a rather odd grouping, but it is a reference to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who was described this way. And Daniel is purported to have lived during the Babylonian exile of the Jews, which was brought about by Nebuchadnezzar. The final element is that this kingship is eternal, ultimately removed from time and space, the divine will is to have the company of all creation at peace with and reunified in its creator. The rise and fall of kings of empires is nothing new, nor has the pattern ended. Every empire on the planet ultimately fails, from the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and extended into the European colonial empires of more recent centuries, all fail eventually. Personally, I think we're in the beginning or in the midst of another time of great transition in the relative positions of prominence among the nations of the world. Now, I'm not hoarding canned goods or toilet paper, but I do see that as he established this feast nearly a hundred years ago, Pius XI 
was genuinely prescient when he wrote that mankind must look for the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. The responsorial psalm for this feast jumps right out of Psalm 93. It is a celebration of the everlasting nature of God's reign. With the refrain only at the beginning and the end, here it is. The Lord is King. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is King, in splendor robed. Robed is the Lord and girt about with strength. And he has made the world firm, not to be moved. Your throne stands firm from of old. From everlasting you are, O Lord. Your decrees are worthy of trust indeed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, for length of days. The Lord is King. He is robed in majesty. Our second reading at this Mass is from the book of Revelation. And it continues the royal imagery. Many scholars have noted the similarities between the Old Testament eschatological visions of Daniel and the same imagery in the book of Revelation attributed to John, the beloved disciple. Here goes a reading from the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, who has made us into a kingdom, priests for his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Behold, he is coming amid the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will lament him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Witness is a word that might be a too tepid translation of the Greek word martis, which is the root of our English word martyr. As witness is used here and throughout Revelation, it carries with it the connotation that Jesus has offered the ultimate form of witness by standing without retreat for his values. His life is not too high a cost for him to pay. Again, we see the cloud imagery. Different from Daniel's vision, the gospel writer identifies the Son of Man as Jesus. Now, in fairness, we should note that the book of Daniel was written more than 150 years before the birth of Jesus. The writer of Revelation, however, concisely explains the salvific mission of Jesus on behalf of humanity, thus giving Jesus legitimate claim to be our King. Jesus, it reads, loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests for his God and Father. The three titles given Jesus in this passage, faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth, speak directly to John's first audience for this book. Jesus did stand without retreat before the Roman occupiers, a model for the Christians of John's time under pressure and persecution. His resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, makes a promise to those who will suffer a similar fate. 
ruler over earthly kings makes it clear that it is not Rome, nor any other empire of man, that will have the last word. Note also the careful use of verb tenses in To him who loves us and has freed us. He has freed us, past tense, done clearly out of love. And he loves us, present tense. His commitment is everlasting. Revelation also tells us that everyone will see Jesus as their king, even those who opposed him in favor of transitory earthly power. The passage ends with Jesus claiming his authority to an everlasting kingship. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. For those of you who didn't pledge a fraternity or sorority in college, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And that word itself is based on the first two letters of the alphabet, Alpha and Beta. But I digress. In each of the three years of our lectionary cycle, the Church gives us a different set of readings for this feast. But you can relax. I don't intend to do a comparison of all three sets of readings today. But if you have time this week, it would be an informative exercise to read all of them. Next Sunday starts Year C in the cycle when the readings for this Mass are the second book of Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Colossians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. The following year restarts the cycle of our readings with year A, and the readings for this Sunday are the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 11 through 17, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, and the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. If you really do that comparison, please send me some notes. I can use all the help I can get with this stuff. The Gospel for this year's Feast of Christ the King comes from John's rendition of Pilate's questioning of Jesus on the day he is crucified. It is as follows. Pilate said to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or have others told you about me? Pilate answers, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. So Pilate said to him, Then you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Are you the king of the Jews? In order to understand the full extent of this loaded question, we need to recognize that this title, King of Jews, had one meaning for the Romans 
and another meaning for the Jews themselves, especially for their embedded leadership. For the Romans, this was a claim to political power. It was a dangerous challenge to Roman supremacy. It suggested revolution on its way. For the Jewish leadership, the title had inherent messianic claims. It was a claim to restore the Davidic kingdom and be the beginning of the reign of God. For anyone to make such a claim had to be, as far as they were concerned, both pretentious and blasphemous. Throughout John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is often called the paraclete, which means advocate or counselor, even lawyer. Looking at this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, it's pretty clear that Jesus has some great moves as a lawyer himself. Did you notice how quickly the exchange went from being Jesus on trial to being Pilate on trial? As an example, Pilate, are you king of the Jews? Jesus, and this is as paraphrased by me, are you basing your question on hearsay? Are you the puppet of others, or do we have a relationship? The two had not met before. Could it be that Jesus is inviting Pilate to be his own man, to truly encounter Jesus, to make his own choice about him? Will Pilate take the invitation extended? Nope. Pilate, again, is paraphrased by me. I'm not one of you people. Your own people are trying to get rid of you. Why? Close reading of this question by Pilate indicates that it is not the political threat that Rome might feel from Jesus, but the messianic issue that is really on trial here. Jesus ignores this question, but does begin to answer the first one. He implicitly acknowledges his royal status, but instructs that it is based on something other than what this current physical world honors. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Truth. Divine truth. The foundational truth of God's love. It's not about power or wealth. It is about something Pilate neither respects nor understands. In the next verse, right after the passage read at this Mass concludes, Pilate immediately asks, and I imagine a decidedly cynical tone, What is truth? Pilate knew bits of the truth about the situation that was unfolding. He knew that it was out of jealousy the Jewish leadership brought him Jesus. He knew Jesus had committed no crime, certainly not one worthy of crucifixion. Ever feel a little sorry for Pilate? He was so close, both literally and figuratively, to Jesus. Pilate is standing next to the truth. Jesus certainly gave Pilate every opportunity, but Pilate's arrogance and privileged position seems to have blinded him. Have you ever said to yourself something like, I could have used that information a long time ago? Only to recall one or more occasions way back then when it was offered to you, but you didn't listen. Or am I the only one who's done that?
Another brief digression. Have you ever noticed that in both of our fundamental proclamations of faith, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, two not-divine persons are named? Of the billions of humans born throughout history, only these two are called out by name, Mary and Pilate. Does it seem curious to you, as it did to me when I first noticed this, that Pilate made the cut? Why? What of such great importance did they have in common? I think it was their moment of decision. Mary said, yes, let it be done to me according to thy will. She was offered the relationship and accepted it without reservation or condition. But Pilate, wishing to appease the crowd, had him scourged and handed over to be crucified. Pilate was offered the relationship, perceived that it would be inconvenient, and so declined. I suppose that is the good measure of how you and I do, in fact, accept Jesus as king. How often do we reject the relationship? How often do we accept relationship without reservation or condition? Oh my, I seem to have just found a good subject for a homily at this Mass, which means that I'm switching to preaching mode, which means that it's time to stop. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll click in again next week as we begin a new liturgical year with the first Sunday of Advent. I pray that this week you will see God's blessing at work in your life.